Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Napoleon Assist. It's day nine of Waterloo Remembered and I've got another treat lined up for you today as we're talking about the forgotten Waterloo and the role that museums and monuments play in shaping how people remember the battle. I'm joined by Marcus Cribb, the manager of Bapsley House, the famous residence of the Duke of Wellington in London, and by Robert Pocock, who runs the Campaigns and Culture Tour Company, which specialises in Napoleonic War battlefield tours. Gents, it's great to have you on. How are you both? Hello, very well, thank you. Yep, likewise. Thank you, Zach. Tell us a little bit about what you both do and your, your connections with the Napoleonic era. Um, so, yeah, I've, um, I've been sort of fascinated by, by the Napoleonic Wars since I was a kid. And, um, 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 and my teenage years were spent very much sort of reading every book that I could um, um, developing a real interest, particularly in Waterloo, but also the peninsula. Um, you know, I loved the history, the geography, um, the great leaders, the great colour of the era. And, um, um, and I got to visit Waterloo about 20 years ago. Um, and um, um, boy, it, um, it, it all came flooding back. It was, um, it was a really moving few days for me. I was sort of walking the battlefield from dawn to dusk. The weather was appalling, but it really didn't matter. And, um, um, and, and at that point, I really thought I, I need to get, get in touch again with my, uh, my, my, uh, my earlier interests. So, so I, um, I set about sort of recollecting all the books that I got rid of, um, kept going. Um, I've got a huge collection of, um, of books, um, old maps, which, um, which are probably some of my, uh, my favourite possessions. Um, um, old postcards which show us the um, evolution of the battlefield since 1815 and, um, and, and that's really sort of formed the basis of my, uh, my interest going forward. And 
the, the thing that I really like about your company is that you focus particularly on the Peninsula and particularly on Waterloo, but you are specifically a Napoleonic era, really dedicated, very detailed, very focused um, tour guide specialist for, for that era, aren't you? Um, I, I am, yeah. I, I'm, something that, that I started doing when I rekindled my interest was going on um, a number of tours and invariably I found myself going back a fortnight later on my own because what I was told on tour just didn't make sense, didn't fit with the latest history, that um, there were gaps, it didn't cover the perspective of all of the nationalities that participated. So um, so I had real fun, um, yeah, if you like, sort of relearning the history, not taking the accepted history, but saying, does that make sense? And um, and and I think when you when you spend so much time on the battlefield as I have, I I tend to be there um, ten times a year or more, um, and a lot of those are my own sort of personal research trips, um, and and you realise that a lot of the people who write the the history actually can't ever have been there, um, otherwise they would never have written what uh, what they do, and unfortunately the the accepted history gets repeated. Um, and um, so um, I love to challenge history. I love to tackle the conclusions. I love to push the boundaries, um, dig out material from local historians. So um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of history which is only just starting to get known in the English language. And um, so yeah, that, that's a huge opportunity to to reinterpret our understanding of not just Waterloo, but the whole campaign. And if people want to find out a bit more about your tours, obviously I can imagine the Corona crisis has just decimated all of your plans, but where can they find out more about what you're doing? Um, well, yeah, um, so um, campaignsandculture.com um, is my website. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly 2020 has been rather washed out. Um, um, but um, happily we were ahead of the curve, we saw this coming, um, we stopped people booking um, even when they wanted to and um, so, um, so we're, we're looking forward to 2021 um, and um, yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who would be interested in joining me in either Waterloo or the Peninsula. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough and you're also on Twitter aren't you? Um, I am. Um, I've been a little quiet of late. I, I tend to have sort of fits and bursts. But uh, but yeah, I, I'm, what I love to do is to share images of the places that I've recently travelled to. Um, um, and I can't stress enough. I, I, um, I, history is one thing, but these battles took place in really beautiful landscapes. Um, and um, um, particularly in the peninsula, for instance, you, know, you, you can be up a, up, up a mountain, you can be beside a lake. Um, you tend to be in places that have hardly changed for 200 years, um, ancient bridges. And um, um, so um, I, I love to share that. And um, yeah, um, of course, blue sky is always uh, compelling, isn't it? So uh, yeah, absolutely is. So <laughs> Marcus, I can't imagine you see a huge amount um, of blue. No, I'm far more constrained within uh, within London. Uh, I, I either have my main office, which is the old uh, Porters, 
uh, bedroom for uh, the first Duke or I'm uh, down doing security uh, on the street. So I do get the uh, added bonus of giving uh, guided tours, actually, which uh, less blue skies, more uh, extravagant uh, art and interiors. But tell us a bit more about what you absolutely. do. So I'm, I'm really lucky that um, until this uh, awful pandemic started, uh, I am the, uh, the manager of Apsley House and it's quite an all-encompassing role. Uh, we're really unique that uh, within English Heritage, uh, we've got the current Duke of Wellington, uh, which hopefully everyone realises, um, Charles Wellesley, the ninth Duke, uh, lives uh, in the private apartments uh, on the other side of the property. And so uh, he's there and then the rest of the house really is open as a museum. Uh, it's been a museum in one way or another since uh, almost the end of the first Duke's time where he uh, put a small museum room uh, to the side and people could um, call and uh, ask to see some of his collection. Because it's, it's absolutely vast. Uh, over five uh, dinner services and I think something over 300 uh, 50 uh, works of art, never mind the, the, the thousands of pieces of silverware uh, that are there. And so, and it's just, and it's grown and uh, grown as well um, during the first Duke's time from his private collection into art um, pieces that were gifted by various heads of state. Nearly, nearly every head of state uh, Europe, including France, are gifted fantastic pieces of art and military orders and decorations, his field marshal batons, particularly. Um, stunning because they, they come from almost every allied army including uh, portugal uh and uh, and the and the armies in the direct campaign but then you've also got like austria as um, as one of our allies so they're all there uh and it's one of the uh favorite parts of the job is to take round interested people or people that maybe have no prior knowledge it is interesting that uh, quite a lot of people come with very little uh, preconceptions and uh, some with next to no background knowledge because um, the Napoleonic era is not covered in the main curriculum. I think in uh, in sixth form I covered AS level, the French Revolution, and we got as far as some general coming back from Egypt and forcing a military coup, you might have heard of the Corsican, and uh, and that's basically where Looking we like stopped. Na Na Napoleon <laughs> or something? Bonaparte, I think he was. And, yeah, um, something like that. <laughs> something like that. He came quite famous. and But we stopped there, and um, it... That's it. And then it was World War Two, World War Two, World War Two, American foreign policy, and then World War Two again. So um, I have to I have to admit, I don't know when it's too early to mention Sharp, but um, obviously that uh, that interest uh, spikes everyone's interest in the Napoleonic era and uh, love it or hate it. It's made a lot of people um, then start to research and read a bit more about what the truth is behind these, these books and these films that are so popular as well. And I have to admit, that's, that's one of the interests for me to go and have a job that I was working in museums and running events and all sorts. And I wanted a career in museums. And so it just so happens that I was already uh, interested in uh, the Duke of Wellington. So it's brilliant. Match made in heaven. Um, um, you're also on Twitter aren't you? As is Apsley House. How can people... As is Apsley um, House. Uh, Apsley House is on uh, Twitter and I'm at the minute doing my own independent uh, reading and research and uh, crib history, I think. Um, and uh, as you'll know, we're, I'm working with Land of History to do some video series as well about all things Wellington. So uh, Wellington Wednesdays and all things Wellington. Um, yeah, please. It's always nice to have uh, interesting people and a bit of debate. And uh, I'm certainly learning a lot from it as people poke their heads off and say, hey, what about the King's German Legion? Hey, what about this uh, small action that, uh, in 
you know, Northern Spain that's ne the, the British historians never talk about, or the sources are in Spanish, can I send you some transcripts? So it's, it's really interesting that there's this passion out there from definitely from all generations. There's certainly some uh, younger historians coming through, which is great. It's a good starting point, really, because both of you talked about your own roles with, within educating the public about this period. Um, as you've just said, Marcus, that this isn't a period that features on the history curriculum. And I say that from experience as a former secondary school history teacher. Um, and and I, sometimes I talk to colleagues at university and they'll turn around and they'll say, but why are you looking at the Napoleonic Wars? Nobody's talking about that period. Napoleon's not even popular in France. And I mean, that's a bit of a generalization, we should say. <laughs> but, but still, I mean, people kind of, they don't necessarily come to this period through an educational perspective. They come through it an entertainment perspective, whether it be through sharp going on tours or, or through their private reading. And yet when you look on social media, there is some pretty divisive, pretty, sometimes quite acrimonious, sometimes, but sometimes it's quite acrimonious discussion going on. So what's your sense about how people kind of engage with the Napoleonic Wars? Uh, yeah, it, it does seem to be quite widely divided that you either have those who've got so little background and that's nothing against them. I think I agree that it's the um, the education system not to blame. It's just so much to cover that they are not covering this as well. Um, but I've had people come, uh, especially from uh, the American tourist market, who I think uh, my, one of my favourite things was a lady who she, she'd heard of Napoleon Bonaparte. She took a guess that he was married to Marie Antoinette and he was the king of France. And that was and, that, and then he said, and then she pointed out. So Waterloo Station, that I'm a bit confused. There's Waterloo Arch on there going Wellington Arch. And she goes, so did the battle take place at Waterloo Station? And I'm just there kind of going, where do we roll back to, I, I don't have long enough to explain all the Anshan regime, the French Revolution, the early Napoleonic Wars, and just try to like, encapsulate that. And again, if you don't have that background knowledge in British school systems, then it does lead the pop culture, your master and commander, your sharps, your hornblowers, um, which love them or hate them, I think they're doing a lot of good for the, the era as a research point, because they get people going, oh, that's quite fun, that's quite interesting. Right now I'm gonna pick up a book. Just sort of pick, picking up on your point in France, um, a couple of years ago I came across the most incredible exhibition of Napoleonic art in um, Arras in northern France um, and it's a pretty nondescript town unless you happen to be a, into World War I tours um, and, and there was the, um, the pick of the Versailles collection of Napoleonic art, most of it commissioned by Napoleon himself, um, and rather than showing it in Paris, they pulled it out of the archives where it hadn't been on show for decades, put it into Arras for, for a few months, and then to be put away, possibly never to be seen by the public again. So um, you're, you're certainly right, there's, there's a real embarrassment about Napoleon, which I think is a real shame, um, but um, I, I think for us Brits, um, I think one of the joys is that it isn't in the school curriculum. So it's one of those topics where we're not forced to learn it. We choose to learn it. Um, and, and that's half the fun. When I was at school, um, you know, so much history um, and the books of the time was about General so-and-so moved this division here and that brigade there. Um, and yeah, it could all be a bit dull. 
um, there was very little um, interpretation from first-hand accounts. Um, and of course, nowadays, history is very much changed. It's led by the first-hand accounts. There's more and more available um, from all the nations, all the participants, which adds a real sort of flavour and colour to history, which, uh, um, which for the Napoleonic era is sort of quite unique. We're talking a lot about myth-busting in these Waterly Remembered interviews. For both of you, what is the most frustrating or the most common misconception about the battle that you find yourself having to correct? Rob? Um, well, I, I'm fortunate. I, I have a lot of pretty well-read guests on tour. Um, and we have sort of good fun challenging their, their knowledge and expanding it. Um, and um, I, I think um, yeah, one of the biggest debates of recent years is the defeat of the French Imperial Guard. Um, what route did they take up to the Allied Ridge? Which, which um, battalions were involved? Um, who exactly threw them back? Was it the First Guards? Was it the 52nd? Um, was it, um, was it the uh, Dutch Belgians of Chasse? Um, and um, yeah, we, we have great fun around that because of course the experience even within the same regiment varies an awful lot depending on whether you were standing in the center of that that line or at the end of the line so um so so that's great um, um there's the sequence of events on the battlefield um and the sort of cause and effect and blame um everything from the morning mud napoleon's apparent ignorance of what was going on um, the route of the prussians um, to their arrival um, and uh, you know, elsewhere in the campaign I, um, there's, there seems to have been some real um, lack of knowledge, um, lack of coverage in the history books on what was happening on the fl flanks at Ligny of Derlon's march along the Roman road. Um, a lot of confusion and limited knowledge of what happened at Genap. Um, but, um, um, I think the most compelling um, thing that we do on our tour, we, we actually do on the very last day, um, and that is to take copies of the original maps that Bruschi and Napoleon had. Um, and we divide our tour group into two teams. One is Napoleon, one is Grouchy. And Napoleon is there issuing his, um, his orders and instructions that we know um, and believe that he issued. Um, and Grouchy is there um, um, issuing his um, very diligent reports back to Napoleon. Um, but um, you know, by using a map, you find that a lot of the place names, actually they appear twice in different places. You have villages with the same name. Um, you have um, descriptions of areas that perhaps don't appear on the map at all. Um, because they're, they're, they're both using different maps. Um, you have um, delays in the transmission of orders. Um, you have um, uh, the uncertainty as to whether they've been received. And I think that puts people really into, into the mindset of Napoleon and Grouchy and, and they start to understand the realities of warfare in the time and the, the genuine difficulties that people had. Marcus, what about you? So uh, essentially coming to it from a almost a post-Waterloo era and something I see online a lot, which is Blucher saved Wellington. 
And I think it's almost, yeah, I know it's such a big question, but there seems to be this understanding. And as a sweeping generalization, it does seem to often come from younger French generations where they've had a bit more of the imperial glory in their um, education, it seems to be. And it seems to be this, this understanding that Blücher just happened upon Wellington's army and his flank in the afternoon of the 18th of June, not realising that obviously it was, a, it was a preconceived fact that Wellington yeah. was going to hold the region of Mont-Saint-Jean, Blücher was going to come to his aid. And I think that's so important that they seem to be, no, it's two separate armies doing their own separate things. No, there was a grand plan and it was largely under the Duke's uh, minds, but Obviously, uh, Beluga plays a huge part, and I think it's that delicate balance of definitely not playing downplaying the Prussians. In fact, giving them their due, but not also saying that the, the Prussians won Waterloo. It was an Allied victory, in my humble opinion, of these armies coming together. And uh, I think it's it's very important that we say Wellington didn't just hold a ridge and sit there and wait for Napoleon to attack him. There was a reason behind this, and that's sometimes just lost and that's a, that's a myth that needs to be busted that Wellington just wasn't waiting for something to happen he was relying upon uh, the grand plan. Absolutely I mean Blücher himself wanted to call it the, the battle of La Belle Alliance didn't he in part because there is an inn called La Belle Alliance for those who haven't been there um, on the battlefield. But yes the, the Belle Alliance I'd agree that you've got the, you've got the farmhouse the Napoleon's forward headquarters but it was an allied victory so mm. you've got the Anglo-Allied Army of the Army of Occupation under Wellington and the Prussians coming together. Also including that you've got Grouchy's and uh, the, the Battle at Wavre and, and Napoleon's. But I also think it then also pays tribute to the fact that uh, Wellington's army, which is often written down as being a British army or actually uh, era appropriate, it would actually say an English army, um, is so multinational. Um, with so many German states in there, that, that Brunswick, Hanover, um, Nassau, uh, the, the Belgians, the, the, uh, the Dutch troops, but also um, within that, the, the Scottish, Welsh, and especially the, the Irish, as we know, they made up a huge uh, percentage of the contingent of even the English regiment. So I think La Belle Alliance uh, is a great name for the battle, but unfortunately our Anglo-Saxon tongues in, uh, in Britain probably couldn't uh, get our a mouth around it and it certainly wouldn't make a good name for a train station in London. No it wouldn't would it but I mean as you say the whole reason that Waterloo was fought at Marseille the reason that there is a battle of Waterloo is because of that connection that trust and that commitment on both sides because otherwise Wellington would have not stood and, and fought at Waterloo if he knew that the Prussians weren't coming. That's it. He would. He chose the ground. Uh, we think he'd seen the ground about six months previously. Uh, we also think uh, recently that he probably read it in uh, the Duke of Marlborough's diary, um, saying that the ridge was the best defensive point uh, between France and Brussels. But he'd spotted that and given orders before that his army was to fall back there, knowing that he would only actually be successful if the Prussians came. It wasn't a, uh, a tactic just to stand there and hold of Napoleon. So um, I think it's really important to tell the story of the wider, the wider picture as well. And in many senses, and we're touching on this now, there seem to be sort of two Waterloos. So there's that basic outline that people sort of think they know, and then there's the more complex reality. How do you tackle that on your tours, Rob? With, um, with, with time. Um, so, <laughs> so the... Um, um, the, the, the campaign, of course, sort of kicked off um, 
um, just over the border in France at Beaumont um, and um, only took a few days um, and quite a few battles to, uh, to, to play out. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's a wonderfully concentrated period of time, but um, to do it justice this year, we were actually planning to do a nine day tour. Um, so far longer than the, uh, the campaign ever took. Um, and, um, and, and that's so that we can actually see where the French kicked off, um, where they launched their, um, their, their attack across the border um, um, and sort of follow all of the battles, uh, all of the routes. Um, I particularly take pleasure in sort of sharing my, my research on the, um, the, uh, the Prussian campaign. Um, it's, it's very interesting. If you look at um, 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 British books on the subject, they, they invariably include a sort of map showing the route that the Prussians took um, to come from Wavre to, uh, to Waterloo. And they use very, very thick lines um, for their arrows, um, really demonstrating that nobody's bothered to, uh, to, to, to establish the precise route. Um, and um, so, so um, have, having identified this as a, an area where, uh, where um, not enough attention had been paid in the past, through my sort of collection of old maps and spending days and weeks actually retracing different routes on foot, um, um, I, I recognise they're pretty much battened down um, the, um, the couple of different routes that the Prussians took. And uh, so it's, um, it's a real pleasure for me to sort of share with people the route that Grouchy took, the route that the Prussians took, um, um, and, and actually to also to take people to, um, to the point where the Prussians um, had a very good view of what Napoleon was up to on the 17th of June. Um, yeah, they, 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 weren't, um, they weren't fumbling in the dark, um, unlike the French. Um, they had a very clear view of um, what was happening and what they would need to do in order to come together with Wellington again. And uh, so, so, yeah, that, that's, um, that's something I great, take great pleasure in sharing with people. Must admit, I, I tried to do a similar kind of thing in the car and got hopelessly lost until I landed, I'm not entirely sure how, in Vavre and just sort of I only had a couple of hours left before I had to get the train and I just thought, you know what, I, I can't try and figure this out, it's going to have to wait another time. Well, I, I, I always reckon it takes at least three visits to a battlefield before you can even start to understand it. Um, and yeah, the, the best way of discovering is actually getting lost. Um, yeah, um, it's, it's something that I've done numerous times and it's, it's a great way of learning from your, your uh, mistakes. Absolutely. I must have driven past the mill at Biaget, Nevav, three or four times and just had to go, it's a dual carriageway as well. So you, if you miss yeah. the turning, you've got to go back and come around Absolutely. again. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, no. I have a, a lot of... A lot of fun last year walking uh, the battlefield with my father for over a week and uh, most days it was incredibly hot um, August sunno, uh, summer and they're carrying things in my backpack like uh, the Mark um, Adkins like full Waterloo companion wrapped up and then laying it out across fields and trying to point out that's where the brigades were and try and actually the, the, the guys like that because they're so comprehensive with the photographs 
uh, you can easily envision it. But uh, and then all of a sudden, when you don't have the photographs and you're going off a an 1815 era map, and uh, it is it is interesting. Uh, and it's it, the Waterloo basketball is incredibly walkable. So I'll say to anyone listening, if they haven't had the chance, it's only a few hours um, drive by ferry to to go there and uh, explore it definitely. We're talking about kind of walking the battlefields. Um, you've done it multiple times, visited the monuments in the process. I mean, the first question I have to ask is what's with the Victor Hugo monument? And I know he devoted a significant part of Les Mis to the battle, but even so, why is it there? Um, well, um, Victor Hugo visited the battlefield twice, um, 1852 and 1861. Um, and um, in fact, it was at Waterloo where he finished his great work, Les Miserables. So um, he wasn't at the battle. Um, he was a battlefield tourist um, and he, he, he stayed at um, the Hotel de Cologne, um, just north of Mont-Saint-Jean. Um, um, it's, it's now the Jaguar Land Rover dealership at Waterloo. Um, but um, so that, that's where he stayed. And um, he, he wrote um, um, uh, a great sort of screed of material within Les Miserables on Waterloo. Um, and it's based on that, that actually a lot of the, uh, the myths of Waterloo um, took hold. So, um, you know, the, uh, the, the poor French Carasiers um, sort of plunging into, uh, in, in, into, um, <clears throat> into disaster. Um, so I, the, the, there is so much material in there which, which future historians have taken as fact and repeated, um, and it's such a shame. Um, but um, yeah, we will forever be um, be trying to correct that. But um, I, the, um, after his death, there were lots of monuments were were put up to him in various places um, because um, rightly the French are very proud of him and. Um, um, and one of them happened to be at Waterloo, even though he had nothing to do with it. I think I one of his myths was the complete falsehood about the, the well at Hougoumont um, as well, the British chucking French wounded down the well, which I think they evacuated quite, uh, sorry, excavated quite recently and found um, a, bit, a bit of a cow's hip and there's, there's no French uh, bodies down there. And uh, he's done a lot of harm. I, I believe I'm, I'm fair in saying he was part of the cult Napoleon. And, um, and so he came at it with a real uh, biased angle. Incidentally, Marcus, um, the, um, the monument opposite Victor Hugo's monument, which, um, which does have real meaning um, to um, the, um, the, 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 the wounded the, eagle. The wounded uh, eagle, yes. Um, which, which is a beautiful um, monument. Yeah, and, and, and that's supposedly on, on the site of the last stand of the guard. Well, they've... They, They've actually got the location wrong, but um, um, but I've I've got the most wonderful postcard from 1904, when when the grand opening occurred, and they laid on tram trips from Brussels, um, the people from Brain Lalude, the neighbouring um, town, um, walked across the fields to the grand ceremony, and it was absolutely packed. There were flags and so on, um, but um, the um, the. The wonderful bit to go with that is that whilst all the crowds were there at the opening of the uh, uh, the uh, or the the unveiling of the wounded eagle, um, 
it was the day that recorded the highest number of, sort of thefts and break-ins in Brain Lelud that they've ever known. So, <laughs> so that's uh, that's progress to the human race for you. It sounds accurate for the uh, the aftermath of the 18th of June with what happened to the, the poor wounded who like lay on the battlefields. The answer it does, lost, doesn't lost, it? Lot changed. Yeah. 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 I should probably just say before I get lynched by Victor Hugo fans that I've got no issue with putting up a memorial to the guy. Can we can we just kind of clear that one up? And I quite like his work. I just don't see the reason for doing it at Waterloo. <laughs> there is so much else to reflect on. The other odd one for me is the statue of Napoleon that's sort of at the foot of the lion's mound in the heart of the Allied position. Mm. To me, that just feels inappropriate because you're standing at the spot where Dutch, Belgium and British troops died fighting him. And that's where a lot of people said, um, also with the Victor Hugo one, you can see it for miles. It's one of the tallest monuments, so it's almost a shame. Um, but yes, it, it's when everyone was saying before you visit Waterloo that it had this huge bias. And it was, it's still actually on the visit boards is Napoleon's last battle is, is what it says when you visit Waterloo, not the great defeat of Napoleon or, or the Duke of Wellington and Blücher were here. Uh, it, it's Napoleon's last, so there's this Napoleonic theme from a pro-Napoleonist like angle throughout. And I think having him there kind of plays up to, I think, lazy history, lazy tourism. If the people are just gonna visit one area of the battlefield, they visit the bottom of the Lion's Mound. The new museum is fantastic, by the way. Uh, and the layout is definitely far more balanced. It gives a good picture. But I think the statue there, which is between the museum and the, the restaurant is, um, is, yeah, I'd agree, very strangely uh, put. If you were going to put anyone there, you know, there's a, there's a wealth of um, allied commanders that would be better suited. And so, certainly the, um, the evolution of the landscape around that lion mound <clears throat> has been quite incredible. And um, when, when I take people up there, I, I actually like to talk about the history of um, of, of the battlefield since 1815, because you've had a real sort of uh, array of different buildings um, that, that, that have gone up. Um, um, and um, so, so um, um, some have been replaced, um, some remain, um, but uh, it's, it's a fascinating insight into the way that sort of people have treated the history of Waterloo over time. I believe that the Duke lamented when he saw the soil scraped away to build the Lion's Mound, something along the lines of what have they done with my battlefield? Um, because it, it changed the topography of the land. It's not a, it's not a steep ridge. It's not, uh, I'm trying to think of Bucasso, for example. It's not a steep defensible ridge. So yeah, it was quite subtle. And so to lower it even further uh, is quite interesting. Do you think the balance between the memorials is right in terms of remembering the different groups that were involved in the battle? Because for me, I just found myself constantly tripping over memorials to French units, French soldiers, episodes within the French side of the story. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then what I found on the British side of the ridge was, yes, some monuments, particularly to individuals, some mm. specific units, but nowhere near in the, in the same mm. kind of ratio to those that exist for the French. I, I found that as well, and I found it quite interesting that there's not many um, memorials to individual uh, units or regiments in the, especially in the, the Allied side. The British do okay, especially around uh, the two like main farmhouses. There's a few near the Elmhouse Crossroads, uh, including like the the 29th uh, Inskling, um, where they they died in square, unfortunately. 
and then you start to walk on and I, I won't I won't name the organization but there's a pro-Napoleon organization that seems to have funded these I'm not gonna name it, I'll get lynched definitely and um, and they seem to be paying and nobody obviously objected and so yeah it's it's basically um, skewed the balance quite a lot to having lots of French line regiment memorials just at individual places uh, and if, if you did that I mean the the entire basketball would look almost like a graveyard, wouldn't it, with small plaques everywhere and rising out the ground. So I think it's important that uh, balance is right. You, you don't see enough to the the allied contingent of the Anglo-Allied army, in my opinion. Uh, they're definitely underrepresented outside of the really? Hanoverian and KGL, uh, the General Legion. There's, I, I don't remember seeing anything to Nassau and Brunswick, um, apart from the Duke's Brunswick Go Memorial. So, And there's nothing really to the Duke of Wellington on the, on the Waterloo Battlefield. Yeah, I, I knew you've you've got a sort of collection of Hanoverian and sort of Belgian monuments um, around the crossroads, and um, but but yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and a lot of that injustice was supposedly um, <clears throat> restored by the unveiling of the new monument, um, closing um, uh, the door on on uh, on war at Hougoumont. Um, and I think reactions to that uh, were quite varied back in 2015 because um, um, some people felt, well, it's, um, it's trying to make a statement about peace rather than, um, um, than honouring the people who actually made a sacrifice on that day. Um, but um, but, but um, I, I think the, the overall experience, um, and there's no doubt about it that the the new underground memorial museum is a huge, vast improvement on what was there before, um, and um, yeah, I, I guess like like any museum, um, um, you take out of it what you <laughs> what what you take out of it, and a lot of people will leave there not really knowing who won, um, and and cer certainly I've I've witnessed that by overhearing other people sort of going around. Um, and there, there's some mag magnificent parts of that and yeah, the, the other um, public museums um, do a very good job of, of um, sort of filling, um, filling the story in the, um, the, the Wellington Museum at Waterloo, um, 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 Napoleon's last HQ at Le Caillou, um, even the Ligny Museum to a certain extent. Um, but um, so um, I, I reckon it's possible to get a balanced view, but um, but yeah, it it certainly helps if you've read a few history books before you uh, you 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 actually visit Waterloo. And Marcus, what's your sense of the museums? Because as Rob's just said, there are a lot of museums that people can actually visit. Memorial eighteen fifteen, obviously on the battlefield itself. Then you mentioned about um, Napoleon's overnight halt. You've got the inn where Wellington stayed the one at Ligny, they, they engage with the history in quite different ways. What are, your, what are your thoughts about that? They do, and I think um, they're also, uh, you can almost date museums a bit like old films. They, they have an era about them. And uh, I'm one of those, uh, I love visiting museums. I mean, it's like a busman's holiday. I, I really enjoy it. Um, and uh, one of the ones is like things like mannequins. Finding a mannequin in a museum that's trying to be like like and fails in its you know real definition is is certainly something of the the 70s to the 1990s, and um, I, I really want to do yeah again do praise to the kind of the underground memorial. I think it's brilliant 
uh, sorry, museum there, um, because it's uh, rather than mannequins, you've got these kind of like faceless features with the uniforms going up. Uh, I didn't notice until the end, you turn around and there's a buzzard escaping its cage, which was a newspaper uh, headline from uh, Napoleon fleeing Elba. And, it, and it's really well done with a, a three, uh, 3D um, videos, weapons, and it tells a story with an interactive element. And I think that's what, especially like the youth market today, are looking for something really tactile, something they can, they can play a game and they can see a lot more. But it's got the elements in there. It's got... Um, swords that have been um, granted to um, the Duke post-battle and the, the history of the collection itself. So that's really quite a modern, hands-on, uh, bringing history to life kind of collection. It's really well done. And then you've got kind of like a, a truer traditional museums where you've got uh, especially the Wellington's headquarters and uh, Napoleon's headquarters, which are very much, there's an audio guide, you read the panel, you see the mannequin, you see the room recreated. And they're, they're really good at what they're, what they're trying to do, uh, which is tell the story from the, the two perspectives of Wellington and Napoleon uh, and there. And, it, and it's wonderful that they are within the original buildings, which not many museums, uh, when you go to get that, especially 200 years ago. Um, I think it's great that they've survived when so many other buildings haven't. Um, and then, then Hougoumont and Mont-Saint-Jean themselves um, as, have become museums. I mean, if anyone's listening and haven't been, they must go to Mont Saint Jean uh, because it's it's now a brewery. Fantastic beer. Um, completely unbiased in saying I'm not even a beer drinker, but it's delicious. And uh, Hougoumont, um, it's got uh, it's so poignant uh, there with the new memorial, the the few trees that remain that fill filled with musket ball holes. It looks like they're riddled by the world's biggest um, woodworm. And then the memorials are within it. It's really it's really poignant. Uh, so and they're all. Actually, it's worth saying, if you're planning a visit next year, um, not with one of Robert's uh, fantastic tours, then you can buy them all on one ticket. Um, so it's, it's also very well planned out. So the local tourist board are doing a, are doing a very good job. I, I, I look forward to visiting again. Absolutely, I think we all do. And I, I think it, it's also worth saying that um, you know, to, um, to do those museums justice, you, know, you need to spend a lot of time there. So. Mm. Um, the sort of people who think, well, I can do Waterloo in a day um, are um, kidding themselves, really. <laughs> so, um, because for me, the joy is to actually get out and about beyond the museums. Um, but, um, <clears throat> and, um, and museums can themselves be, um, um, they, they can lead people in the wrong direction, should we say. So I mean, take, take the, the Ligny Museum. People go to the village of Ligny because it has a museum, and that is the name of the the battle, which is supposedly Napoleon's um, last victory. Um, although Zach heard me speaking last year saying, "Well, actually, it wasn't really a victory at all," um, but um, <clears throat> but because of the the focus on the museum at Ligny, people go there. Of course, it's nothing like Ligny as it was back in 1815. Um, yeah, there's only one and a half farms still standing from, from the day. Everything else has changed. The road layout has changed. One of the prominent features of Ligny was the castle, which was destroyed. So, um, and, and Ligny is quite an expansive battlefield. Um, and unfortunately, people visit Ligny and they think they've done Ligny. Um, and actually, they need to spend a whole day 
covering and exploring the entire battlefield of Ligny to get a sort of true perspective of what really happened there. On that note, actually, I found um, Capgebrat quite hard to, to visit. So I was with my father who couldn't cross the, uh, like the, the difficult terrain as easily. And also, I don't want to go traipsing across um, farmers' crops. Uh, but you've, you've got the memorials and they're on different sides of what's a quite a fast, busy road, um, especially you've got the, the two cavalry memorials on one side and the Duke of Brunswick on the other. And uh, I believe the, the barn that had witnessed the battle was torn down within living memory, I think about six, eight years ago. Yeah. And it's now a, a petrol station. So it's a real shame that there's much less to see there. And I found the orientation of trying to um, see that much more difficult, whereas where the line mound kind of helps, even though it's changed the topography, is it, it pinpoints uh, an area of the battlefield. And from there, even somebody who's not familiar with maps can start to orientate themselves. Um, so if you just, if you only had a day, which is definitely not enough, you can at least see the top of the battlefield and do uh, do a couple of museums. But yeah, I'd definitely say uh, turn it into a long weekend, a week if you, a week if you can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not something to be rushed. And it's interesting what you say about Catra because um, we should make the point that actually this is private farmland. A lot of the, the, the fields are now private land, which you can't walk on. And you, you don't be chased off by uh, a farmer armed with a shotgun or whatever. Um, so, so do take care um, not to just kind of go wandering and trampling on somebody's crops uh, when you do have the chance to visit. But Capture Bra, it's almost a case of blinking, you miss it, isn't it? Um, there's certainly, yes, you've got the Duke of Brunswick Memorial, you've got a couple of other memorials there. But it's, uh, it's much, it's a quiet place. But then Waterloo is also a quiet place, except for the highway going to the middle. But it's a much more understated location. Is that your sense? For Catchy Bra? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's much more understated. Um, I can only think of, I think, three memorials um, that we stopped and visited. Uh, and there's a little, car park turning in place between the two um, like the cavalry memorials you there's no footpath leading down to uh, the duke of brunswick's memorial even though it's the largest memorial um, we had to kind of you make your own way by the side of this really busy highway uh, which I, I wouldn't encourage people uh, unless they were uh, you know very very safe in doing so and uh, in doing that i didn't see anyone else visit whereas at waterloo you have the the stereotypical coach trip people being dropped off shown it around for two to three hours and then put back on, off they go to do another site, another probably not battlefield tourism. They're, they're there to do a, a Belgian uh, holiday and they're off to see the chocolate factory or something lovely. But um, they, they wouldn't stop by uh, Bra, which is a shame because it's part of this big picture of the build-up and the not just, um, not just a, an English air inverted commas on podcast uh, army is 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 the, the Brunswick you know memorials there and they're trying to meet up with the the Prussians in layman's terms. Yeah, I mean it is worth wading through that sort of patch of nettles that you you have to sort of walk through on the side of the road to get there. I was cut to shrivens by the end of it, but uh, <laughs> I mean it's a very impressive memorial. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that Bras doesn't really feature. People just kind of ignore it, and it, it was so pivotal to the Waterloo story, as was Ligny, perhaps more so than Catrebrat. Quite possibly. I, I was speaking um, recently with uh, Josh from Adventures in History Land, and he was saying if it was a World War I campaign, it would all be called uh, Waterloo or Mont-Saint-Jean. 
and you know like the Battle of Mons was a series of small battles and where the the era history changes we're almost lucky that we separate it Wavre, Ligny, um, Capgebras and uh, the Mont Saint-Jean and but because of that some get really overlooked and I think that's that's a shame so Capgebras uh, and it doesn't feature very strongly in the museums as much uh, I guess there's so much to cover uh, I guess there is so much to cover, which is, uh, but it is, it's such an important battle in the, in the telling of what is such an important story. Yeah, I, I, I would totally agree with everything that you say about Quattro Bra. It's difficult to get around. Um, in certain places, it's dangerous to get around. Um, there, there are a couple more m memorials and, and places to, to see. Um, and certainly over the years, I've established my sort of favourite way of doing it. Um, but um, I think a lot of um, Quattro Bras is actually understanding the, the, the relatively modest undulations in, in the ground. Um, so, so your direction of approach is very important. So, for instance, I, I like to take people um, um, to Quattro Bras following the route taken by um, the British Guards, by the cavalry and the horse artillery late in the day. Um, um, so that they can see that approach. Um, I like to follow Ney's approach up towards the battle um, and, um, and then take a couple of different routes um, around it. Um, and um, and, and the, uh, the high ground above the, uh, the old Quattro Bra farmhouse, which as you say, Marcus has sadly gone now. But um, yeah, we, we've got a lot of British descriptions of what happened up there and it's, it's now housing and it's not nearly as special as other parts of the, uh, the campaign landscape are today. But it's certainly possible to, uh, to bring those aspects to life and to, to do so safely. But, um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's not the right place to spend a high proportion of the tour. Do you think we mark Waterloo in the right way then? Because every year on the battle anniversary, reenactors descend on the battlefield, they recreate the famous events, and there's a fantastic buzz. Um, but it's hard to imagine anyone doing that for the first day of the Somme or for Dida. You know, you wouldn't get landing craft coming in and people storming um, the, the beaches of Normandy. Have we got the balance right between celebration and commemoration? Um, well, for me, um, it's never about celebration because, frankly, tragic things happened in all of these these battlefields. Um, so, yeah, it's about commemoration. Um, I think the way that I look at it is that if you visit a World War One battlefield now, there are cemeteries everywhere, um, and um, yeah, it's it's very easy to become a tour of a series of cemeteries and frankly over the space of a few days it's very easy to uh, to get dragged down by all that. Um, there are quite a, quite a few uplifting cemeteries um, in places like the um, the American cemetery above Omaha Beach World War II um, and, and it's just incredibly beautiful even, even though you know, the, the, uh, the crosses stretch as far as the eye can see. Um, but um, I think in a way, Napoleonic history, because everyone was buried in mass graves or mass cremations, um, and very often those graves were dug up a few de decades later and bones were crushed and used for fertilizer and so sold around Europe. Um, yeah, we, we, we're, um, 
the, the landscape isn't now affected by those cemeteries. Our immediate thoughts aren't affected by those cemeteries. So I think it leads, leaves us freer to, um, to actually enjoy the landscape, to, um, to, to look at the history in a very positive way. Um, and um, um, and um, in a sort of beautiful and breathtaking way that you can't necessarily do with with um, some of the more 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 modern campaigns of history. It, it's so interesting. I think in, in short answer, no, we don't have the balance right. Um, I was hoping to attend this year the 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 reenactment, and uh, I must give a shout out to the Third uh, Battalion, Ninety Fifth Rifles, Living History Society. Um, and they, I was going out with them, and I, I can understand that there will be kind of celebrations of all these like-minded and effectively historians, uh, normal with normal jobs, um, coming together. And you know, there's, there's there is the there is the farmhouse, which is a brewery, and uh, all these people kind of coming together and meeting. And it's there's some jollities. But um, I know that there were commemorations planned for um, the 16th, the 18th, and also the next day uh, during the reenactments. And that's something that I've I've I have to say I've seen really well done by uh, living history reenactments uh, societies for the era that they do normally hold uh, a minute science afterwards and they are aware of it but then personal bias warning um, it's too easy to celebrate um, especially within like within British military culture I think it's it's a terribly tragic series of events again this is personal bias but I see this as Napoleon's ego bringing him back I, I just don't see what he was ever hoping to achieve. Peace was impossible and victory incredibly unlikely. And because of that, what on, on the Battle of Waterloo itself, 50,000 um, wounded and killed um, just from that one battle, Adin, Wav, Lingy and Kachibra, uh, it, it's really poignant. Um, I wish it was something that was more in the national psyche possibly because it's out of living memory but we do feature it's within the, the front culture of our um, memory of, is the Somme, is D-Day and to a lesser extent also Trafalgar. Um, that's kept really uh, well alive by the Royal Navy as, a, as a, a bookmark in history whereas Waterloo I think kind of is far more overshadowed by World War One and World War Two and um, these, these men, you know, it's not long out of um, our great-grandparents' generations uh, should be remembered that they were fighting for, um, you know, Europe's and Britain's uh, freedom. And I think it's really important that uh, we do that. I've seen some calls this year as there's no, going to be no reenactments that people find a local graveyard or a plaque in a church and maybe on the 18th of June go down and reflect for two minutes. I think that's a lovely uh, thing. And if anyone can do that and find uh, these things, then I think you should remember those uh, relatively young men's uh, sacrifice. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're encouraging people to do is to just take two minutes um, to, to celebrate I and mean, we're organizing a, a memorial service and you can find details of that up on the website um rob what for you should we be marking um why does why does waterloo matter to you so um so yeah i'm 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 really not one to set agendas for the way that sort of people should feel um and i think people um, um get varying things out of um their studies of battles their visits to battlefields, um, and um, um, it's not for me to, uh, to to see how they should feel. Um, but um, and some bring a massive knowledge, um, 
some bring very little knowledge but a desire for learning and um, um, and I think it's very important that we we um, we don't forget the lessons of history um, <clears throat> with, with a different career hat on a few years ago um, I wrote a blog on the economic causes of the French Revolution um, and it very much described um, all the mistakes that the advisors of the French royalty uh, made um, which led to the revolution um, and and how we're doing exactly the same thing in ter terms of our uh, our governments and our economics today um, and this was sort of picked up by um, by a think tank and went on to win global awards um, I, the reality is that what I was saying um, came from an old history book um, an old economic history book um, I, I, I wasn't really um, making any dramatic new points it's just that people had forgotten those things and it, I think it's so important that we remember history um, we try to understand history um, and we we're, we're not hoodwinked by the fact that accepted history says such and such happened. I think it's always important to keep challenging, keep learning, keep an open mind. And Marcus, what about you? Why does Waterloo matter for you personally? Um, it matters. I mean, I, I'm surprised that I found myself it matters so personally. I, I do find that the ear is so uh, invocative. Uh, everything from I, maybe I'm, I'm lucky and I feel like I have a bit of an insight into uh, the life of Arthur Wellesley and I found place, visiting places like Warmer Castle where he uh, sadly passed away in 1852 quite emotive because there's, there's this room laid out uh, very well done actually but it matters um, as much and I think I don't want to say should but it, it matters to me as much as the First World War. These are men um, of different backgrounds who are being told to uh, fight for their, their nation's liberty and freedom against uh, a, a possible foreign oppressor. And so you, you've got parallels uh, there certainly with, um, you know, the, the politics of monarchies of, of 19, uh, 1914 to 1918, uh, in my opinion, and other wars. Uh, and I think it's one of these battles that you can, you can, you can walk the battlefield, you can put yourself literally um, down if you've got one of these maps or you're doing one of Rob's tours you can stand in these exact places and the the armies back then have definitely because they were bigger have got real regional routes you can find a, a regiment that is um, part of your home um, your home county or certainly an area nearby and you can try to think of what it would have been like to to stand and face a cavalry assault or stand and see a cannonball coming for you and you weren't allowed to do anything about it. I mean, the tactics at the time um, mean that you were standing and facing uh, like a real mincemeat of, uh, and I think there's, a, there's an element there of bravery and sacrifice and that shouldn't be uh, forgotten. And I especially despair when I see people chanting it online, especially vive l'empereur. And I just see the other side of it especially young conscripts in uh, Napoleon's army going forwards to be slaughtered and then the men either doing the slaughtering or be killed themselves. It, it really is a bit of a tragedy and uh, luckily brought uh, peace to you know, our part of the world for quite a long time. So the, the, if there's going to be a celebration, it would be that we had relative uh, peace uh, in, in Britain, in Europe, um, 
for military threats, not social reforms, which are also equally fascinating, uh, but for quite a while. So um, I think it's one that uh, is a bit overlooked in Britain, maybe, and that's maybe why it matters so much, because anything we can do is to try to remember um, the Napoleonic Wars, be it Waterloo, be it the Peninsula, be it uh, the, the Eastern European campaigns, um, you know, brings the history to life, but also brings the uh, commemorations and the sacrifice to life, which is very important if they can't do it themselves. Absolutely, and I think that's a, a lovely point to end with. Marcus, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me for this interview. That was Marcus Cribb, manager of Apsley House, and Rob Pocock, manager of Campaigns and Culture Battlefield Tour Company, discussing Waterloo, the Forgotten Battle. You can follow Marcus on Twitter at mcribhistory, and Apsley House is also on Twitter at Apsley House. Campaigns and Culture can be found at Campaigns and, or on the website www.campaignsandculture.com. If you have any questions or comments, remember that you can get involved on Twitter using the hashtag WaterlooRemembered or in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net where you'll find a specific room dedicated to Waterloo Remembered discussion. I'll be back tomorrow with a look at why Waterloo matters, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterloo Remembered from The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.